Yeah, yeah, I, I like the thought I have because my George and Jim and uh, Ethel and Linda and all of these b- b- beloved people in my life and the ones I've forgotten right now, but they'll all be there and he will make them all feel at home. And when you meet him, when you meet God, you end up meeting two Jesuses, so to speak, for Jesus is a spitting image and in him, the fullness of God is made known. So why did I write the little book? I had to write it with that kind of thing in mind. Yeah, yeah, the God of the towel. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Life on the West Side. I'm very excited about this special episode where I got a chance to sit down with Jim McGuigan, a preacher who has the same heart as mine with a passion for Jesus Christ. He wrote a book several years ago called The God of the Towel that really shaped how I see ministry. Now, there's an updated version that you can find on Amazon, but I think the original that you might still be able to find you somewhere is the best book around to teach you the importance of putting Jesus Christ first and seeing God through Jesus Christ. And that should inspire you to want to give your life to ministry and to see God as the answer to all the ills of the world. So I sat down with Jim, and I asked him three questions, and I'm going to present here his answers. The first question I asked Jim was, why did he write The God of the Towel? What inspired him to write such a magnificent book? Well, I, I, uh, I'm not uh, very sure that I know not very well, um, but I do know uh, all those years ago that uh, I was big on Jesus Christ. As all of us were who went around these little gospel halls and, you know, heard about him. That's all these guys ever preached back in those days. Uh, they preached about Jesus Christ and what a sweet man he was and all of that. So I know I was affected by that. And every now and again, one of the stories that, that you see and you read and hear and rejoice in, uh, these guys bring the woman taken in adultery. They put her down, draw a circle around her and all the crowd is looking at her and, oh, you know, and, and they're cheering and waiting to see what they could do with Christ. And Christ draws a bigger circle that takes them and, and uh, he gives them the chance to back out saving face. When he said, cast the first stone, he's giving them a break to back out so that he can do for the woman. And then he lets her loose and he lets her loose. Does nobody condemn you? She says, no, Lord. He said, I don't condemn you either. I don't condemn you. And because we've known and because we've all struggled with our own sins that we've gotten forgiven, uh, forgiveness, uh, oh, that worried is greatly and, and we're guilt ridden and all of that. And, and he comes and says, I don't condemn you either. Go, don't do it again. And you feel like jumping up and 
praising him, you know, good for you, you know, and that kind of spirit. And then he comes to this, this um, Pharisee's harness, and there's this working girl, as we used to call him in, uh, over in Ireland, the working girl. She comes in and she does all that that the story tells us she did. And then the the the, the, the host who did all right, uh, invite Jesus in for starters. Jesus did even better and, and said, all right, I'll come. So here, here, the guy's saying this, that, and the other, and Jesus ends up saying, mister, you see that woman? She's a better woman than you are a man. You know what she did to me? You haven't even shown me the courtesy that's uh, this, that, and the other. I don't think it was too harsh, harsh with the guy, but he did ask the question. Who loves deepest? A generalized remark. Who loves deepest? Well, the one that's forgiven most. I suppose Christ said, you got it. You're right. And it's that kind of thing about him that we were taught and, and, and sang and all of the rest of it. And I'm certain that, that that's that. Uh, Though it's very intimidating uh, to see him be that kind of deal. But he makes it clear in Matthew 20, 28, I come into the world for this. Not just to die. I came to minister. Not to be ministered to. I came here to serve. Ooh. And then so in that night, 13 men in an upper room. How many lords and how many servants? Yeah. Well, there were. There were 12 servants and the one Lord. No, no, there wasn't. <laughs> there was one servant, 12 horse. Because right across all those guys, there must have been on the other side of the room. They wouldn't have sat near him talking the way they were talking. They were arguing about who was number one and who should get their place and all of that. And then he says to them in 2022 20, of Luke, you're the ones that stood by me in all my trials. He's so easily pleased. He's so easily pleased with a heart, giving what it's got, giving it the best shot, giving it to him. Well, I don't have a whole lot of faith, but I've got it. Yeah, well, you know, give it to him. And he's happy. And he looks at them and he says to them, you are the ones that have stood by me in all my trials. What? Was he telling a lovely lie to encourage somebody? Jesus doesn't tell lies for any reason. So when he said that, it was genuine. And he saw them giving all they had, and he knew they would give more if they had more. But even if they'd given everything that they had, he would want them to know, you don't have to earn your keep with me. He's got a text that says, after you've done all that you're supposed to do, you're still unprofitable servants. And it's not an insult. All he's doing is telling them, you see what it cost me uh, to get you and to uh, do what I do? You could never work enough to show me profit. So relax yourself. Give me what you've got. Know this, after you've done all, well, we give them all we've got, but we can never give enough to make ourselves profitable. He's not hurting them. He's telling them, relax, give me your best shot. 
And he's like that. And it's that kind of thing that we were uh, heard when we were kids and taught when we were kids and, and preaching that we used to preach in the street. We used to go and stand outside the cinemas with a big, uh, a big microphone plugged into somebody's house wall and, and preached away at the people lined up going into the movies, uh, that kind of thing. And we preached about Jesus Christ all the time. So I'm certain all of that is, is what I just like them. In Don Quixote, in Don Quixote, when uh, Aldonza is saying the Sancho Panza, why, why, why do you follow him? He said, why? He said, we've got these great deeds to be done. She said, great deeds? What? And he says, well, you know, um, these, these uh, fights and, and these uh, nightly this, that, the other, and she's mocking him. And then he realizes there's no way. He said, well, let me tell you. And he sings this song. He said, I like him. I just like him. <coughs> and the number of reasons why we should and are able to like him. Do you know why I like Jesus among all kinds of things? And if I like Jesus, I like his father, if I like Jesus and the Father and the Spirit, all one, distinguishable but not separable. When I love Jesus, I love God. For in him, Jesus, we see God. I like him because he likes my anthem. He likes my Linda and George and Jim. And he likes friends of mine that I like. And I, I could look at them in my particularly pious and religious, sincere, it's true. But when I'm feeling particularly pious and, and religious, and I'm not complaining about that, I think it's good and right in those moments. I, I get real joy in thinking and imagining, and I'm allowed to imagine my Ethel when she first met up with him. I don't know all that goes on on the other side right now. I know there's this post-resurrection life. We're not offering just life after death. We're offering life after death, after this, that, and the other. So when Ethel comes, and she was very easily intimidated by authority figures. I am that way myself. But here, she would, you know, and doctors scared her with less than that. But I, I think of the day when, when she would be like that. No, she was feisty and all of that with me. I mean, you, you know, she wasn't frightened of, of me or anything like that. And she didn't run around after me like a little, you know, okay, what do you want me to do, Jim? Nothing like that. She said, what? You know, that sort of stuff. But when she met him and she saw him and she would go up to him and she would say, are you, are you him? And he would, <laughs> oh, I love this. She would say to him, are you him? And he would say, yeah, I'm, I'm him. You're the one that I've got to thank for all the things you brought me through in, uh, in my life and, and brought my kids through and, and, and all of that. And she, she, she thanking him and thanking him. And he's all smiles and say, ah, that's who I am. 
And, and then she would say, can I hug you? And he would say, well, I'm glad you asked me because I was about to ask you, can I hug you? And here they are. And then he would take a run and then reduce her to all these people. I need you to meet another and here. And he would introduce her. And everybody who's all happy and no envy, no jealousy, all of that is gone. And the capacity to be like that without envy and all of that is, is now massive. Uh, we're free of the narrowness. We've, we've, we've grown and we're bigger than that. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the thought I have because my George and Jim and uh, Ethel and Linda and all of these beloved people in my life and the ones I've forgotten right now, but they'll all be there and he will make them all feel at home. And when you meet him, when you meet God, you end up meeting two Jesuses, so to speak. For Jesus is a spitting image. And in him, the fullness of God is made known. So why did I write the little book? I had to write it with that kind of thing in mind. Yeah. Yeah. The God of the towel. My second question to Jim was, tell me what it is that, in your opinion, we're doing wrong in our church services so that our focus gets lost and so that we don't actually bring people to the point where they are enamored by Jesus Christ. Tell me what we can work on in our congregational assemblies. Yeah, a number of things. I think we underestimate our assembly. And what is happening when we gather? I really do think that. I think people people can't know we're Christ and God's when we're all scattered. We're still the church of God when we're scattered. But somewhere we're going to Walmart, Publix, down to some pay, some bill, or whatnot. And people see it, but they can't know who we are. And but, well, but they'll see how courteous we are. I see thousands a year of non-Christians who are very courteous. And I don't, I don't, you know, you can't know that. The place where they really know our, what our faith is centered on is in our assemblies. Well, there are, not, there are not many people come there, but that's all right. But they know why we're going there. And if we, when we get there, make him center, God is center, everything structured well. The preacher and the song leader uh, have gotten together. This is what I have in mind. And, and would you who are skilled uh, in leading us in our liturgical uh, worship from that angle, oh, would you choose out songs that will go along with this and give us coherence? We, 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 we don't see the supper. We don't see the supper as a place of celebration as well as thanksgiving for forgiveness. You're on your own. There's nobody there. There are no two guys on the side. There are no Romans. There are no women sobbing. There are no disciples. Just you and him. And you're looking up. This young man is dying. He's right on the edge of it. He's dying. And you want to know what, what is happening here. Hmm. And you hear somebody saying, 
the world is being reconciled to God here. What is happening here? Death is being destroyed here. What is happening here? Sins, all of that that is against you has been annulled. All of these things, make your list. How many things can you list? Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, rulers to counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. We won't have them as king. That's what, that's what David said back in Psalm 2. And that's what's happening, Peter said in Acts chapter 4, by the mouth of the uh, prophet David. You said this and this, for this day in this city, Pilate and the people have all gathered together to cast him out. And you are doing what you said you would do in David's experience. You were making your king. Yet I will set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. You are my son at your kingly position. You are my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me the heathen for thine inheritance, the uttermost part of the earth for thy possession. You will rule them. Ugh, all of that. That's what is happening here. Right now when I see this kid dead. And that is what we're doing on the Lord's day. When we come together and we take the bread and we take the wine and together we announce the death of Jesus Christ and the meaning of the death of Jesus Christ and the consequences that follow it and his coming again. We don't know what we're doing at the supper. And I hold us responsible mainly for those of us who are leading. Us. Yeah. The supper is a profound. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, you know what the supper is? It's a protest against all demonic worship. When you go to the supper and all together as one loaf, and we all participate one another in the fellowship and uh, with Jesus Christ, we're saying, we're saying one thing up in the temples back in that day and on those places up in the temples, they're saying things about demonic power and this, that, and the other. We're defying them with a, a meal. This is what we're doing here and on and on. My last question to Jim McGuigan was this. If you had one chance to speak to all the preachers in the world, and you could only tell them one thing, but you had as much time as you wanted, what would you tell us so that our preaching would be what God wants it to be? Hmm. Oh, I should be there. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd tell them, you must have noticed that Jesus was always talking about himself. I mean, all the way through to say, um, he said to the crowd or our group anyway, uh, you know Jonah? And they would have said, oh, yeah, well, of course we know Jonah. 
And Jesus said, oh, yeah, that's the fellow with one sermon, turned the whole uh, empire structure around. I'm greater than Jonah. Mm. And then to another group, he said, you know, Solomon? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, Solomon on his best day, I'm better than him. You know, the temple? And the temple wasn't just a building. And I'm saying this like people don't know. They know about it. But it's good to be reminded the temple wasn't just a building. That stood for all kinds of things. It was the center where God had made himself present in the midst of the people. And one of the Psalms has the nation uh, described as uh, people heading down to Jerusalem to worship. And they started out with these wee tiny roads, leaving their house in a wee tiny tract. And they walk, and uh, then it turns into a, a bit of a road. But by the time they get there, other neighbors there start at the, you know. And then they go down, and they keep walking, and now they're chatting together. Now they're on a bigger road, and other people are all gathering, and, and they're heading down. Finally, it gets to be a man drag, and hundreds and hundreds and then they keep on going down and the psalmist said they come to a valley area and the whole place is like an ocean of worshipers and they all then head uphill to the city that building was more than a building and it was more than a building to jesus so um i would tell them let people know what it, what it is that, uh, where they're going. But Jesus would say to them, you know the temple, don't you? Of course, oh, I'm greater than the temple. You want to see the Torah? Look at me. I'm the development of and the fulfillment of. Paul will say, Christ is the end of the law under righteousness. Wasn't just the termination he was talking about. It was the whole teleological and this I am where the pedagogue points and brings you I am and Paul would say of Christ firstborn from the dead that in all things he might have the preeminence Jesus said of the Holy Spirit oh, when he comes and he'll teach you everything he will show you things that come but he'll tell you about me and he'll tip my things and all of that that kind of will glorify me. The Holy Spirit won't say a word that is not about me. And he didn't even choose what he wants to say. He chooses what the God self has agreed to say about me. God wants himself seen and known because he's speaking to humans. He's not dealing with archangels or anything like that. He is speaking to humans, and he wants to manifest himself in his relationship to humans in Jesus of Nazareth. I would say that, and I would hope I would say it better, but I would say that Christ is, and any, any hermeneutic that is not God-centered is a bad hermeneutic, any hermeneutic that is not Christocentric in order to be God-centered. It's a bad hermeneutic. And, and preaching to educate, and 
well, it'll be done if we're doing anything half decent at all. We're going to be educating people. And I'm not against education, but I am saying, I am saying that education, I've learned a lot of things, and so have you, and so has everybody else. A billion things we've learned and we never use them because they're they're not, you know, they're not for that. I can't remember, you know. Stuff I spend all kinds of time on. I thought, ooh, ooh, this is really interesting and all of that. <laughs> I I've not used it. So so it's important for preachers to get what is central. What is it? Well, do you want to be a churchman or do you want to be one of those nice academics that can write for academics or teach for academics? But if you want to be a churchman, Whatever you do, get your material and give it to them. And if indeed you are, this is all, uh, it's working on to be something about preaching, as if I knew about it very well. But I, I know good preaching when I hear it. And those who speak to the rank and file have to take into account who they are and speak according to their needs and their first need. To help them live their lives aren't as to introduce them to Jesus Christ and then develop them, as Paul said. My business and our business is to bring believers to maturity and to get to know and to get to know him. And this I would say, Paul in 1 Corinthians is telling these fellows who've got all the gifts in the world. Chapter one, he said, You have come behind and nothing. You've been given knowledge and you've been given speech and you've been given miracles. You've been given all of this. And he said, oh, that's wonderful. But then in chapter 12, he's telling them all have a different deals. And then they're big, they're big on the gifts and all that they've got. And Paul says to them as he closes out chapter 12, look, look, you see when you come to the assembly, choose the best. Look after and want the best gifts for educational growth and all of that kind of thing. And then he says in chapter 13, you know, if I knew everything, if I knew everything, if I had the answer for all the questions and I didn't have love, I'm nothing. And he goes on to say that kind of of thing. And he talks about quantity of knowledge, even though that's not his point at all. He talks about quantity of knowledge. He's really talking about what real knowledge is. I would say that. He says, we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when uh, the perfect comes, whatever that is, and I'm utterly satisfied, even beyond the pay. I cannot be changed in this view that he's talking about loving. The only way you can get to know is to love, he said. When the perfect has come, the part will it'll go away. And in loving, we will then know even as we are known. The knowledge that God has 
and he knows everything, but it's governed by like his power and all everything else about him. It's governed by what is center about him. He's a lover. And the way to get to know Paul says is to be a lover. And if you and I love then our knowledge, our knowledge of one another, our knowledge of why we're in the world, the knowledge of how we go about living, love will open everything up. And in the meantime, in the meantime, we see in a mirror darkly. So here's this oh, poor old mirror, shiny plate of some kind. And the fellow, the image he's using as a fellow is looking in the mirror. And there's somebody behind the fellow who's looking in the mirror. And so he sees the reflection of the one behind him. He gets a bit of a picture, of course, but it's, it's, it's not very good. And then he turns around and now he sees face to face. And Paul is making the point in 1 Corinthians 13. You want to know? You're bragging on knowing, you're bragging on the gifts that you've got. It's all, it's good. It, it gives you some, these gifts give you some. But unless you're lovers, unless you're lovers, you see in a glass darkly. And if you become perfected in love for one another and for God and all of that, You've just turned and you're seeing face to face. And then you will know, not quantity wise as God knows us. That's not possible. But you will know in the way that God knows us. For God looks at us as the, our creator and our redeemer. And he's got nothing in him. He's got nothing in him. But love, that, that's the whole. First John. Those that don't love don't know him. That's all there is about it. And Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 8, get all the knowledge, but if you don't really, you don't really love you, you don't know what you're, well, you, you think you're knowing, but you're not really knowing much. So here are two pagans. 1 Corinthians, happy pagans, pagans with a crowd of happy pagans. They all went to the dances. They all had this riotous living. They all went to the temple, worshipped the gods, and went through all of that. They were happy people, and they would have died one for another. Then they hear the gospel. Ah, they hear the gospel, and a lot of them become Christians. And the central thing that they learned was the Shema-type teaching. There's only one. There's only one God and there is no other. All these other gods, they're inventions of an alienated humankind. Now then, ooh, now then. So they can go to the temple now and not worry about it, as 1 Corinthians 6 makes it clear. They go to the temple and they get to do all this stuff, and they can do that with no conscience. Because they now know there aren't any gods for pity's sake. This is all nonsense. And then one guy who has got it really well, that there's only one God, but he has friends. And they've been good friends all these years. And that good friend is a Christian. But he hasn't really grasped this thing 
that there's only one God and all the rest are, you know, nothing. And so when I sit down to eat in an unbeliever's house, the two of them or the three of them are sitting down, and, and the nervous ones in Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, the nervous ones are worried about, oh, wait a minute, you know, this was when, let's this, this meet with the gods. They had it up there, and they're all nervy in that. Uh, and Paul said, if that happens, if that happens, you who know, don't you dare to go ahead and eat, chomp your meat, and, and smirk and sneer at the weak one. That? That is freedom from the gods? That is coming to know that there aren't any gods and there's only one? And he has shown himself in Jesus Christ. You who now know I am free from the gods. I am well healed with knowledge and I'm free. And what do you do with your freedom? You abuse your brother. For whom Christ died, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. You, you, you have him sitting there, he's embarrassed. Everybody's eating, but he's, you know, he's got that sickly smile. He's afraid, but yet he can't not eat because he's looking like an idiot. And so he eats and he has hurt himself grievously. And Paul said, You want to get to know God? You love that man. You love going on and on and on. I tell them that. I tell preachers that. I hope you've been as encouraged as I have been in listening to Jim McGuigan speak about the importance of Jesus Christ, seeing God through Jesus Christ, and seeing our ministry as shaping people into the image of Jesus Christ. The next several episodes of this podcast are going to be my sermons from a series called The Good and Beautiful God. It flows out of the same power and passion that we saw in this episode. And I hope that you will tune in and be excited, enamored, and decide to follow Jesus Christ with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. May God, the God of peace, sanctify you all the way through, keep you safe, and hold you close. Amen. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.